0: As we come now before the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew? We'll be again here in the Gospel according to Matthew in in chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, your, your dominion endures throughout all generations. Lord, you are faithful in all your words and kind in all your works. Would you press these words now upon our hearts that as we listen, we would submit ourselves to you. By your spirit, would you help us to see and to believe. We ask these things in in Jesus' name, amen. This is the gospel according to Matthew. We'll be here in chapter 1. I want to take these first 17 verses. Yikes, right? Uh, Last week, some of this will sound familiar because we touched the first six uh, last week, but we're going to read this again. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin again here in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azer, and Azer, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of God. I think I pronounced all of those right. I feel like I need a breath even at the end of that. Let's pivot here there. Um, if someone were to ask you who Jesus is, what might you say? You know, because we, we can't say every truth at once, as much as I try to do that as a preacher, you know I try to squeeze in every word edgewise here that I, that I can. But any communication, whether it's written or spoken or a dialogue or sermon, whatever it is, that we necessarily make choices about what to say and what not to say. So, so what might we say to describe Jesus? There's lots that we could say about Jesus that's true. Jesus is teacher, healer, savior of sinners. We might say that Jesus is, is the light of the world. We could say that he's the way, the truth, the life, that he's the resurrection of the life, even. Or we might say something about Jesus' relationship to us, that is that you know, he's the vine and we're the branches. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the creator, we're the creation. Or if you know, we were tec- technical and, and doctrinal like pastors tend to be, we could say Jesus is the second person of the eternal triune God, which sounds very important, right? Or we could say that Jesus is the son of God, or the son of Joseph, or the son of Mary. All of that is true. There's a lot of places, then, that Matthew could begin as he wants us to look at who Jesus is, but He doesn't start by calling Jesus the Son of God, the Son of Mary, or even the Son of Joseph. He starts instead by calling Jesus the Son of two others. In the very first verse, you can see he's called both the Son of David and the Son of Abraham. That's his starting focus. So last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at that that uh, second one, the son of Abraham, that Jesus comes as the son of Abraham as this bearer of blessing to all the nations. That he's not just for the one nation, country, or people of, of, of Israel, that he's really come to bless all peoples, all the families of the earth. That's what it means that he's the son of Abraham. Today, we want to look at what it means that he is the son of David. And as you might expect, this is a reference to the fact that Jesus comes as king. So it would have been easy enough for Matthew to start his writing like this. This is the book of Jesus Christ, the king, and the blessing to all nations. That's what he means to say in that opener. He could have just then skipped over this long lineage and just said that. But instead, in this very long, roundabout way, he highlights all this heritage because Jesus is not just any king. This is not just any blessing that he brings. These are particular things. These are references. Jesus is then the fulfillment of a very ancient, specific set of covenant promises from God. So he's now the son of David. David, we know, lived a thousand years prior to the birth of Jesus on earth. David, you're familiar with him. He's, you know, the the little shepherd boy with the sling. He's got the famous battle with, with Goliath. He's also anointed by God as the second king of Israel after the first king Saul. So there was a huge mess under the kingship of Saul, but then once David has settled into his throne, once he has conquered all of his enemies, then David takes a moment as king and looks around and goes, what now? We have peace, we have rest here, what now? And he says, In 2 Samuel, chapter 7, you don't have to go there if you want. I'll read just a few verses in a moment. He says, I want to build the Lord a house. The Lord has had his dwelling in this tent, this tabernacle that we've had from way back in the Exodus days. I'm going to build him a house. And Nathan the prophet says to David, go for it do all that's in your heart, the Lord is with you. Except in the middle of that night, the Lord then comes to the prophet Nathan with words to tell David. So the Lord says to David through Nathan, it's not you that will build me a house. That's backward. The Lord says to David, instead, I will build you a house. Now David already has a house. Here he lives in a place with a roof. And this is a play on the Hebrew word for house. Hebrew word for house can mean either building or dwelling, but it can also mean a people, a family. And it's that second sense that the Lord then promises to build a house, build a people, build a family through David's son. This then is part of that covenant promise. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7 Listen for the the relationship to the offspring or the son. Verse 12, the Lord says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. So here's the promise of what we call the Davidic covenant. This coming son, this offspring of David, is promised to build a house of the Lord, that he'll rule the throne of the Lord, and that the kingdom of the Lord, through this son of David, will be forever. Now, that's the promise to the king. The people, then, who are aware of this promise to David, know that this promised son of David is not just any old king. There is something very unique, very big about this kingly son of David. So they watch then as David's first kingly son, Solomon, rises to the throne. And Solomon, the next king in line, builds a literal house for the Lord. He builds the temple. But then in his days, the kingdom starts to just... Come apart. And by the time it's ready for him to pass on to his successor, his son, Rehoboam, the kingdom has split. And his son rules only just a remnant. There's now Israel and Judah. And then there's a series of sons of kings that come after Abijam and Asa and Nadab and so on and so on. And the kingdom is wavering, shifting, spiraling in all these different directions. And none of these kings, none of these sons of David quite seem to fit the promises that have been made to David. And yet the people still hope. Still hope that God will keep his promise. That God would make a kingdom that is stable and established and good. And that would come through this king, the son of David. So now when when Jesus steps onto the scene a thousand years later, his connection to David is sprinkled all over the birth narrative in Matthew and Luke. So he's described as... As the son of Joseph, who's the son of David. Joseph's the son of David. So he's not the, Joseph's not his biological father, of course. You know, this is a miraculous birth. But Joseph still is his heritage line, his legal line. So his father is a son of David. We're also told that, that Jesus' parents traveled to Bethlehem, the city of David. A prophet says Jesus is the horn of salvation in the house of David. And then Mary is told specifically about the throne of David and this promise in Luke chapter 2, note chapter 1, verse 32. This is from the angel to Mary. The Lord God will give to him, the child, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So when Matthew opens up this gospel, calling Jesus the son of David, there's this whole history of things all wrapped up together. Packed up in this suitcase is a whole bundle of old promises, Old longings, old hopes, that Jesus now is the king, not just a king, the king of kings, the once and forever king. Now, this in some ways is not familiar to us. We know, of course, that Jesus is a king, but in practice, some of this is different because we're not used to a monarchy in our society. A monarchy, you know, a one ruler system. We think in terms of democracy. Our nation is a a democracy, that is, there's people rule. That's what democracy means. So in our society of democracy, we have divisions of powers to try at least to keep balance. So, So if you don't like the president or the current governing leader, you just have to wait a bit and try to vote him out. That's how a democracy works in our system. The monarchy that, that at least I'm most familiar with is the monarchy in England, right? We see them on our magazines every so often, on the covers, the, the kings and queens. And at least today, the, monar- the royal monarchy in England is mostly symbolic. You know, they make a, you know, appearances. They give speeches. They're kind of the figurehead of the nation, And there's some rule of the monarchy in England now, but there's not a whole lot of governing power, actually. A king, however, in Matthew's day is far different from this. A king in the first century has a whole lot of power. They are called sovereigns. A king is called sovereign. That is, he has supreme, total, absolute authority to rule. So a king in this first century is not under the law. A king in the first century is not even above the law. The king is the law. So he, can, he has complete legislative power in just one man's hand. That can be unnerving. I mean, we could compare this situation to the days of Esther. We're familiar with some of this. You remember, if you've read it, or if you remember some some years back, remember the Persian king Ahasuerus in Esther's time? Uh, So at one point, the king, Ahasuerus, issues a decree to annihilate all the Jews. One flick of the pen, you can say, all the Jews, one day, young, old, women, children, all of them gone. And when the king seals that decree with his royal signet ring, no one can say to the king, you don't have power to do that. They might say, you shouldn't do that. That's what Esther says. That's what Mordecai says. You shouldn't do that. But they don't question the king's authority to do it. When there's a king, when there's one king, he has total governing power over the nation. So that seems to be in large part of what's on the people's mind in later years when Jesus is riding in the donkey, you remember, on his last week into Jerusalem before he's crucified, and the people are shouting out, Hosanna, they're waving the palm branches, Hosanna to whom? Hosanna to the son of David, they say. Hosanna in the highest. So they're thinking of Jesus now in terms of a new king, a new governing power, that, that Jesus, this king of the Jews, is going to be greater even than the Caesar of Rome. And in one sense, of course, that's true. The throne of David will be established says the old prophet of Isaiah, and his, the government will be on his shoulders. So he has complete governing authority. However, however, listen, for the people to think in terms of national governing power is just too small. Because as massive as a typical king's sovereign rule is, there are still some pretty big limitations to his power. Over even small things. Let me give you an example. A sovereign king cannot get me to eat candy corn. (laughs) If we were Baptists, I'd get an amen somewhere. Give me to eat candy. I love sweet things, but candy corn gives me the willies. It's not just the taste, it's the feel. Okay? A sovereign king could issue a decree of command that I eat candy corn. A sovereign king could establish surveillance to watch me to see if I'm eating the candy corn and follow the decree. And the sovereign king could even threaten to carry out punishment, even the most severe punishment for me, for, for not eating candy corn. But at the end of the day, that king cannot make me eat it. I don't imagine it's probably going to come to that. Nor would this be a hill that I'm probably willing to die on at the end of the day, I probably would. But but you get my point here. Even with a king who has complete, full, one hundred percent political power over the government, even that king can only go so far. But Jesus is a different kind of king. The son of David is a different kind of king because he is not only king over the polis, that is, the politics, the cities. He is that, but he's not just king over the cities. He has a much bigger sphere of authority than anyone has ever seen. And if we were to track through Matthew, which we won't do completely, I'll just highlight the parts for you, and look for places where Jesus is called the Son of David, there are at least three bigger spheres than government over which Jesus has kingly authority. He does have government political authority, but there are three bigger spheres that I want us to look at here in Matthew. Let me highlight the three, and then we'll be done. First, Jesus is king over the natural world. He's king over the natural world. This is what I mean by it. Twice in the book of Matthew, we hear a cry of, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. That comes from a pair of men who are blind. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, a typical king over government might be able to fund vocational rehabilitation programs so that a blind person can get a job and work. They might provide protections specifically to make it illegal and to cheat blind people so that they would be guarded. They, they might set in place ADA acts where there's you know braille accessibilities wherever they go so they can read and do things. They might establish some sort of healthcare reform so that they get the proper care they need debate over whether or not that ought to be all those things might be good that, that might be some work of mercy but that's not the call of these men these blind men say Jesus son of David open our eyes and he does because he's the king over nature nature This is outside of a typical king's realm of power, of course, but Jesus has total sovereignty over the whole sphere of nature, which is why we see him walk on water, command storms to hush. We see him making the dead alive again at will with just a word because he is the king over the natural world. That's the first here's the second. Jesus is the king over the supernatural world. He's the king over the supernatural world, that is, the unseen, those things that are beyond nature. The other two major times in Matthew where we hear Jesus being called the son of David, it's still in the context of him giving mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. But, but these other two times are not just because there's a physical problem, like blindness, It's because there's a spiritual problem. There's a man and a little girl, each of whom are oppressed and plagued by demons. And when there's a call for his kingly mercy upon them, Jesus gets rid of those demons in an instant to restore those people. Now, can you imagine a presidential candidate running on that sort of platform. You know? We see a lot of outlandish things on on, uh, political platforms, but imagine this one. Bring me all of those who suffer from unseen enemies. All the people whose nights are haunted and whose days are taunted by devils. And I will end all the battles in the spiritual realm. We'd think that guy was nuts, probably rightly. And yet here is Jesus, the son of David, not only claiming to do that, but actually doing that. Even the worst enemy of man, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, is cast forever into the pit by barely a word from Jesus. Because Jesus is king over all the supernatural world. That's the second one, third and final sphere of his kingship. Jesus is king over the history of the world. Jesus is king over the history of the world. In the opening of Matthew, when Matthew first calls Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham, that first sentence in the opener would have been sufficient. And yet, Matthew takes all this time to list out each name in this long heritage. Let's just pause and recognize for a moment that every time a a particular person's name is mentioned here, that's an entire generation. You know, each name represents roughly at least 20 years that passes with each name. So as long as it takes me to read it all out loud, I am leapfrogging across history in reading it. You know, decades, centuries even are passing in just a few short sentences. And at the very end of this whole generational summary is, is verse 17, where there's some debate here of, of what Matthew is trying to say. Scholars discuss this all over the place, but he groups these generations into 14 and 14 and 14. Whatever that means, we can see at least, at least this conveys not just that history is passing, but that history is ordered. That it's bundled and coordinated. That the passing of time itself is ruled and governed. You know, sometimes we hear people say, God is outside of time. And that phrase is not in the Bible. I'm not sure that it's even quite technically uh, true. It's at least misleading, because that may lead us to think that God is somehow disengaged with time. It's better to say that God is king over time. Not just that he's outside of it. He is king over it not under it, not subject to it. He rules and governs all of time according to his purposes, past and future. That is, remember, the son of David reigns forever. Jesus is king over all the history of the world. Now, that leaves us with one big question. If Jesus, if Jesus the son of David is king over the political world, king over the natural world, king over the supernatural world, and king over the history of the world. If you really believe that, why are you anxious about tomorrow? If Jesus is really king over everything, why are you anxious about tomorrow? We know, of course, that we want to be wise, thoughtful about our choices, seek the Spirit's wisdom as we go about our days, but we have to remember not to give other things more power than they actually have. Democrats don't rule. They will always sit under the reign of King Jesus. Republicans don't rule. They will always sit under the reign of King Jesus. COVID doesn't rule. It will always sit under the reign of King Jesus. Whatever your Thanksgiving day will look like, that day does not rule. It will always sit under the reign of King Jesus. And even the devil himself who prowls around like a roaring lion, he does not rule. He will always sit under the reign of King Jesus. We know this. We know this in our minds, right, that Jesus is king over all, but it is hard to hold on to that in practice. And at least one of the reasons for that, I think, is because we often think of kings as ones who are distant. Kings are distant, right? You know, even if we think the best of a a particular king, a particular governing leaders, even if we have the best leader who really does care about the people which we don't always have leaders like that, but sometimes we do, even the best kings can only care about the people generally, not particularly. Even if they wanted to, they can't, because a king does not know every one of his people. So he is distant, even if he's good. But there is something unique about this king, about this son of David that we need to remember. The Lord's very old promises to David and to his son is not that the son would be a king who builds a nation. It's that he would be a son, a king who builds a house. That is, he's building a kingdom of people who are his family this king then knows every one of his people by name, which means that you are not just citizens of his kingdom, you are sons and daughters of his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Lord, King, would you help us to really take these things to heart? That we would find rest in your rule, that we would live faithfully under your rule as both Savior and Lord. Help us not to be anxious about tomorrow, knowing that all things in nature, in the supernatural world, or even in all of history, are in your hands. Help us to honor you as people who follow the King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.